Hey folks, welcome back to the podcast. I am James Finch and this is The Finch Show. We're back for another episode and I am excited. But first, I gotta talk our sponsor, Blackstar Woodcrafts. Go to Facebook, go to Instagram, go to Etsy. Type in Blackstar Woodcrafts and you will find my man, Scott. He runs a shop up in Michigan and he does some of the neatest things that you can imagine with wood. It absolutely blows my mind. Um, the artistry that he can put into it, the detail that he can put into it, and these things look absolutely amazing. Now you may think to yourself, what is a woodcraft? Well, the list goes on and on and on. He does these really, really insanely cool ornate pens. I've got one um, that I posted a video on the Facebook and I think Instagram page for the show not too long ago called the Skull Twist Pen, where it's a, it's a wood pen, fully functional pen, and it is like a total display piece. I love showing it off to people. It's a wood pen with kind of like red streaks through it that's polished and everything, and it's got these ornate metal adornments all across it that look like bones, and there's a skull at the top that the eyes light up red in the sunlight. Really cool. He does bath caddies. He does clocks. He does bottle toppers. All kinds of really neat things. Go check it out. You'll see what he's got available, and if you have an idea for something or you like something that he has, but you kind of wanted a different size or different color, by all means, reach out to him directly through there. He loves talking to customers. He loves discussing the, their ideas, and he can give you an idea how much that's going to cost and how long it's going to take him to get it to you. You want something cool for yourself? You want something really unique and original for a gift for someone? Blackstar Woodcrafts is the way to go. And because he is the sponsor of this podcast, if you mention The Finch Show, you will get 15% off your order. You cannot go wrong. Go do it. Go do it. As soon as the podcast is over, listen to the podcast first. Um, anyway, moving on. My guest today is Jessica Kale, and she is a historian, a blogger, and a historical fiction author. I first came across her. Netflix had a special called The Lost Pirate Kingdom, which anybody who knows me knows that. I'm just like all about pirates. I just think it's like one of the most fascinating periods in history. And she was one of the historians that they interviewed for it. I looked her up, and she's got a really neat blog called Dirty Sexy History, which basically boils down. I shouldn't say boils down. It basically looks at history from a less sanitized view than we're used to seeing in our history textbooks and our television and movie programming. Really gets down to the nitty-gritty of a lot of interesting topics about human history. And I, you just go down the rabbit hole on that blog, just reading post after post. There's one that's really interesting about cocaine and Victorian medicine um, and all kinds of fun stuff. Go do it. Go check it out. But she agreed to come on the podcast, and we had a really great conversation. I absolutely loved it. She was a great guest. I hope I can get her to come back sometime, but I'm going to stop talking. Without further ado, here is Jessica. All right, so we're here. Um, I've got Jessica Kale with me. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to come on the show. I really, really appreciate it. Um, the interesting thing is, is I came across you in the most recent uh, Netflix special, The Lost Pirate Kingdom, yeah. which is fascinating to me. That whole period is just absolutely fascinating. Um, and your take on a lot of things is really interesting, which got me then to like going to Google, like things always do. And then you go down the rabbit hole. And then I find this, uh, blog called Dirty Sexy History, which <laughs> is great. Like you could just sit there forever reading those. I, I guess to sort of start, what was sort of the, what motivated you to create that, do that, run that, all that stuff? To start Dirty Sexy History? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, gosh, well, where do I start? Um, now, <laughs> I mean, my background is very much in history. You know, uh, my first degree is in uh, ancient and medieval history. Um, I studied that over in the UK. Uh, my thing was castles. And um, so I grew up in Minnesota, right? I was always very, very interested in castles. And there aren't a lot of castles up there unless you count like the Corn Palace, which you absolutely should not. <laughs> so of course I had to go over to the UK, right? So I ended up um, over in Wales, you know, for uh, about 10 years. I did my degree in, you know, I did the ancient history and then also the medieval history, kind of going around all these castles and things. And, uh, you know, I always had that interest. So even after college, you know, I kind of got into more of the journalism and kind of media side of things. I always kind of had that that kind of history in the in the back of my mind, you know. I wanted to get into writing historical novels, and uh, the more that I did that, 
what kept coming up is that, you know, my friends and people that I knew would write these incredibly well-researched articles and readers would leave these awful reviews and say, well, that's not accurate. But of course, you know, they were. So I really wanted a place where we could kind of go and discuss this uh, lesser known history, you know, so like things where, you know, we can kind of debunk common misconceptions about the past, or, you know, we can talk about things that, you know, a lot of people don't know about, you know. Uh, so of course, my thing is, you know, I'm uh, Primarily, I'm a, I'm a historian of like sex and sexuality in history. Um, and there are a lot of misconceptions about that. Uh, so, you know, I, I really kind of started the blog talking about like contraception in history because people think that, of course, it didn't exist before 1960 uh, when it absolutely did. So I really kind of wanted to set the record straight. So it was it was about that. And it was also about, um, you know, just all of my other kind of interests. And, you know, um, <laughs> I, I, this sounds really bad. I don't have very highbrow interests, you know, like the kind of things that I like, you know, I like to talk about, uh, you know, sex and history. I like to talk about drugs. I like to talk about scandals and murder and poisonous makeup and all kinds of stuff like that. So I really kind of wanted a place where, uh, you know, I could kind of indulge those research interests. Um, and it, it really just kind of grew from there. Uh, it's been going for about five years. And uh, at the moment, we've got about half a million readers, which is pretty respectable wow. for a history blog. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we're, we're having a real good time. Well, that's fantastic. Yeah. The, um, that's good. The highbrow history has been overdone. Like it's yeah. to death, you know, <clears throat> excuse me. And we do, um, the thing that I love about it, and I've always felt this way. I don't consider myself as a historian, but in college, I was a history major. My father has his doctoral degree in history. So it, it runs in the veins, um, is that we deal with a very sanitized view of history, a very yes. boiled down G slash PG rated view of the way things were. And, you know, mm -hmm. humans, especially Americans, for whatever reason, seem to have this like um, almost Puritan view of our Anglo-Saxon past as though everything was sunshine and roses and great and godly and all that kind of stuff. And then now all of a sudden everything's going haywire. You know, which I think that if you if you actually got into reading some of the history, especially British history, oh my gosh, you know that stuff is just <laughs> absolutely insane. I was um, I'm off on a tangent now. No, it's have a good tangent. <laughs> yeah, have you seen uh, Have you seen the movie Bohemian Rhapsody? Yeah. Yeah, I was just watching it the other day, and I love the line in there. And I, I'm a terrible Queen fan that I can't remember the guitarist's name off the top of my head. Um, when he made the comment that Americans are Puritans in public, but perverts in private. And I thought, yeah. wow, if that isn't the most accurate statement I've ever heard in my life, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. And of course, you know, the Victorians were as well, um, you know, kind of <laughs> notoriously. But, you know, you're absolutely right. You know, people do have this uh, this very kind of like sanitized, kind of nostalgic, beautiful view of the past. And, you know, the more people you meet who, you know, like they, they you know, say that they're kind of history buffs, but like they don't really know anything about it. And I don't mean that in a kind of disrespectful way, just that there is so much more than what people tell you. Um, and, and it is it is very sanitized. People like to believe that, you know, in the past, you know, women never misbehaved, you know, people like Anne Bonny didn't exist. And um, which is, of course, kind of how I got involved in the show. And, um, you know, people never swore. People never skipped church. People never had sex before they got married. Oh, my God. You know, so and that's that's really um, it, it's kind of become like my life's purpose to kind of prove that wrong. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we do it in kind of a fun way, you know, not not in a way where we're, you know, kind of confronting anybody just like, you know, hey, isn't this interesting? Check this out over here. Let's talk about how, you know, the first condoms were invented in the 17th century, you know, like that kind of thing. So um, that's, that's really what we're interested in. Mm -hmm. The, um, and you mentioned Anne Bonny. Yeah. And boy, that, that's a character that I feel like I could do a series of podcasts about because she's such oh, a fascinating character. Mm -hmm. And um, you're like far more the expert on this than I am, but sort of, I sort of get this perception that when we deal with people like um, Anne Bonny, uh, Mary Reed, um, even, you know, Jack Rackham, mm -hmm. um, that a lot of these people who were very active in that time, a lot of our understanding of them comes from second, third, fourth sources. Yes. You know, we don't have a lot of recordings of things that we know 100% they did at this date and time. Of course, photographs didn't exist back then. Mm -hmm. A lot of times the paintings that were done of them were told by rough description or sometimes even done years and years later. So I always find it interesting when anything is uh, historical fiction with those characters, how differently they can be interpreted from one medium to another. Um, right. And then there's the, isn't that sort of like the alluring mystery that we don't know what happened to her? That she just kind of dropped off the face of the planet, which leads you to like, you can come up with all kinds of fantasies about where she went and what she did. 
I love that part. Yeah, that's probably my favorite part. Um, we can really only speculate. And um, I mean, unfortunately, because there aren't any sources about that, and she did just kind of disappear into thin air. Um, really, the best we can do is kind of look at what we know about her personality or what we suppose about her personality. And, uh, you know, kind of come up with theories from there, you know, of course, one of the one of the better known theories is that um, she basically went back to Charleston, got married, had nine kids and had like a really normal life. But from what we know about her and from the legend and from these kind of, you know, contemporary tabloids talking about these exploits, you know, do you really think a woman like that's going to do that? You know, like, is she really going to go home and like marry some random farmer and just like kind of do the normal housewife thing? I don't think so. Mm -hmm. Of course, if she did, I mean, that would be, you know, pretty deep undercover, which you got to respect. <laughs> I don't know if I buy it, you know? <laughs> There's some um, family somewhere in Virginia or something that doesn't even know that they're long lost, you know, they're descendants of Anne Bonny and they would have absolutely no idea you know oh yeah oh yeah no absolutely <laughs> that would, that would like, be really cool what your grandma did right yeah. yeah do you um this might seem like a weird question to ask a historian um but do you uh do you play video games at all uh not a lot um which ones are you thinking about I'm thinking about the Assassin's Creed series if you've ever seen or heard of oh yeah no uh I've I've heard of it I've seen some of the previews uh the graphics look absolutely incredible but I've never mm -hmm. played it myself the fun thing and for anybody who's historically minded this is a really really great concept the idea is, is they've figured out that the memories of all of our ancestors are locked inside of our DNA Mm -hmm. So by laying in this machine that they've developed basically like an MRI machine you can go into a virtual reality world and live relive the lives of you know your ancestors and of course it has to do with this whole there's this battle between the assassins and the templars to find these lost artifacts and well we know so and so so we got to find somebody who's you know a descendant of them and get them in the machine and see if they can figure it out um but they did the one they did black flag centers around the law the the pirate age and it was interesting between that and uh the series that you were in and then of course the show black sales the three different ways Anne Bonnie was interpreted from her being kind of like a prettied up dandy to being a really, I think in a black sale, she was like a really, really rough and tumble woman. I mean, just not oh, yeah. somebody we're going to mess with. And I can't remember the actress's name, but the one who portrayed her in the Lost Pirate Kingdom was just absolutely great as well. Yeah, no, uh, very, very interesting. Um, and there are so many different ways that you can kind of interpret her. Um, and I'm, of course, all we can go on is, is, you know, these kind of secondhand legends and these kind of tabloid interpretations. But um uh, one thing that I suppose people don't necessarily consider the way when I try to look at Anne Bonnie and I think about what her life might have been like, and of course, you know, it is speculation to a point. You've also got to look at other women of the period. So kind of the danger with this, of course, is is having that kind of nostalgic, sanitized ideal of the past. You know, uh, people like to think that women in this period, you know, uh, they're very buttoned up, they're very well behaved, and this could not be further from the truth. I mean, particularly kind of women in Britain, people coming from that kind of background in Ireland, even people in the colonies over here, you know, and uh, and as you mentioned, of course, you know, uh, America does kind of have that uh, somewhat puritanical background, the idea of being almost like we got to prove something, you know, um, <laughs> but other women at the time, particularly uh, my research interests are mainly focused around London. So during this time and a little bit before, you do have other women cross-dressing. You do have other women uh, who are fighting. You have other women who are major figures in kind of like the London you know, underworld. You have people like Maul Cutpurse, right? Uh, before Anne Bonny, she was basically a crime lord in the uh, sort of London underworld, you know? You've got people like uh, Julie Daubigny, right? She was a cross-dressing opera singer who challenged men to fights and then stole their wives, you know? I mean, like there were other women doing this stuff. You know, so she wasn't the only one. And of course, you know, meeting Mary Reed, I mean, that must have been incredible, you know, like you kind of meet this kindred spirit. But of course, Mary wasn't the only one doing that either. So, you know, kind of back, back in England, particularly, and when people look at this, they do like to kind of focus on the aristocracy, because of course, it's more well documented. But when you get to the lower classes, you find more people, you know, kind of, uh, kind of misbehaving or or conducting themselves in these kind of, you know, unusual ways. But then the more of them you find, the more you realize it wasn't as usual, unusual as you think. Um, so if you kind of put her in that context and you look at these other women who were also doing those things, it's not that surprising. Um, so, you know, you can find, you can find these things, uh, particularly with that type of woman, they, they tend to be kind of old Bailey records and kind of court cases and things like that. Um, but she certainly wasn't the only one. Mm -hmm. Well, and it was such a brutal time. Oh, yeah. You know, so, I mean, absolutely brutal. It, it always kind of like uh, the the relationship there of London and it sort of being 
the the head of the great British Empire and the height of civilization and society. And the back alleys in that city alone were just absolutely horrendous. I'd imagine that anybody who finds a way to survive or get an upper hand to get out of where they were in is going to take it regardless of whatever social of norms course. or rules are in place. Oh yeah, absolutely. And um and at this point too, you know, it, it kind of became a point of pride to flout those, you know? So um, I don't know how much, uh, of course you do have a history background yourself as well. So I'm not sure how familiar you are um, with the, sort of the Tyburn gallows and then also the kind of the regular kind of public hangings they had. Mm -hmm. So at this point, now those gallows had been operational by the time Anne Bonnie was around, we're talking about probably between six and 700 years. So at this point, you know, you could be hanged for basically anything. You know, I think it was stealing anything that was worth more than I want to say a shilling um, mm. was an automatic death sentence. They didn't care how old you were. You know, they're they're hanging eight-year-old kids. This mm. is absolutely disgusting. They do it at regular points throughout the year. I believe it was eight times a year. And these kind of hanging days were like enforced public holidays. So they wanted people to go to kind of make an example of all these people to try to, you know, put the fear of God into them or whatever. But it was so unjust that people would go to support the people being executed, not to, you know, kind of throw things at them, but to kind of show them that they weren't alone when this horrible thing was happening to them. Mm -hmm. So it, it kind of became another way of like kind of sticking it to the man, you know, uh, which I think is kind of great and, uh, and really brutal and just so horrible, but they, they killed so many people. And again, for, for stealing anything like that. So we're not even talking about, you know, uh, kind of like stealing a coin from somebody's, you know, pocket. The, there is another case of a woman who we talked about her on the blog as well. Uh, she stole a pair of stockings and it was worth enough that she could have been executed. But because she was a woman and it was just it was like a pair of like secondhand stockings, she wanted some socks, you know, um, they actually transported her instead. Um, mm -hmm. So some of these, you know, some of these sentences were being commuted to transportation at that time. People would end up over here. People mainly kind of ended up in Australia. Um, but you know, your your whole life could be ruined. And of course, also, this is a system that is not designed for people to be able to get out of it. You know, if you are born in the poor classes, you're lucky to survive. So these, you know, these people, you know, very much uh, who are involved in the kind of golden age of piracy, like the people we talk about on the show, you know, if, if you can find a way out of it, you want to do it. And you don't grow up with a very good uh, you know, kind of a respect for law and order, I want to say, because they're they're seeing that these policies in place they are unjust you know that you can't you can't trust something like that that's set up to kill children you know i mean it's disgusting so you know of course they want to you know kind of rebel against it any way they can um and you really got to respect that i i think that's kind of wonderful actually mm -hmm. well and it um from what i understand it was sort of like life there was so brutal and of course life expectancy was incredibly short especially compared yeah. to today um that it wasn't uncommon for a child to be born Mm -hmm. Within a few years, the mother dies for some reason, father mm -hmm. remarries, a little bit later, the father dies, the stepmom remarries, and you end up with this perpetual cycle of children who are basically orphans in their own family, living in squalor, living poor, under, with a system that's designed to essentially crush them. Yes. And so for some of those people, the opportunity to come to, quote unquote, the new world, mm -hmm. because it wasn't new until white people found it, um, <laughs> that that was a, you know, and that partially had a lot to do with the influx of people wanting to come to the what would become the United States come to the colonies and then I can also imagine like if you get an opportunity to sail on one of those ships your life is going to be short and brutal but at least you get to have fun along the way and you know maybe get to pull the ripcord on a cannon at a British ship that'd be kind of fun right that would be kind of fun that's that's an interesting way of looking at it for sure um and and of course, you know, that would, that would absolutely present that kind of opportunity to some people. And a lot of people wanted to take it. And, you know, of course you have indentured servants and people doing like, um, that kind of thing as well. Um, but one thing to consider um, also, you, of course, you mentioned people becoming, you know, kind of orphans at very young ages. Um, and that is true. And kind of being passed from relative to relative or ending up in places like workhouses, uh, ending up on the street. Now, what happened to a lot of these people, um, well, boys in particular, is they would actually get press ganged into the Royal Navy. So this is where a lot of the pirates came from. So when I talk about being press ganged, and you probably already know all about this, but you know, when I talk about being press ganged, this is, you know, they had such a hard time getting people to voluntarily enlist to join the Navy because the conditions were so horrific. 
that they would actually, when they would sail in, they needed more people, they would basically just kidnap them. They would just scoop them up from port cities. You know, so we're talking about like able-bodied men. You don't even have to have a background in sailing. You know, it could be a guy just kind of like working his vegetable cart or whatever, you know, like, oh, he, he's got good biceps, let's take him, you know what I mean? Oh, wow. uh, but they would also take these orphan kids, you know, so um, particularly the younger ones, they would have them pulling the cords on the cannons. You know, you've got your, your kind of powder monkeys. They would be doing these things where they would be climbing through the most dangerous parts of the ship, you know? in like active battle, you know, refilling these cannons and, and doing all of this, you know, kind of this stuff that's very essential to, to the upkeep of the ship, but also being in incredible, incredible danger. So the conditions were awful. So they have the, you know, children doing this, you know, they have, they have people who never asked for this, you know, people who have been forced onto these ships. A lot of times, you know, they're, they're either taken by force or like sometimes like they would actually abduct like drunk men. Like if they passed out, they wake up on a boat, you know, like a couple of miles off the coast and there's nothing they can do about it. Oh my God. Um, but you know, the, the conditions in the Royal Navy are horrible. And if you ever get a chance to read, you know, some of the court cases and some of the things that came out, I mean, you could be, you could be beaten to within an inch of your life for like really minor infarctions, you know, um, you'd have to, you know, kind of wear these, these uniforms, you'd be beaten, you'd be starved, you know, the, the conditions were so terrible that for a lot of people, when they got the chance to, you know, go off and join the pirates, they're like, it cannot possibly be worse. So that was really the best thing that they could do. You know, at least that way they had a chance of, if not slightly better conditions, because, you know, we can't say for sure what it was like on all of the ships, you know, at least, you know, maybe kind of making a name for themselves and, you know, kind of getting to keep some of the money and maybe not you know, kind of basically being murdered through neglect on the high seas, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, so, I mean, there's only so much that we can know for absolute certain about the conditions, but but what we do know is that a lot of people were, you know, kind of abducted, kind of press ganged and forced to join. Um, and a lot of those people were kids um, and it's absolutely brutal, you know? Gosh, that'd be interesting if you could somehow have a diagram and track family trees, mm -hmm. you know, somebody who going back 500 years family had resided in england and then just one of these kids gets snatched up and ends up on a royal navy ship and then ends up on a pirate ship and then for some reason ends up in charleston and oh yeah you know then has a son who fights for the, against the british and the revolution and you know oh you know <laughs> what happened yeah you know and, and that's uh that's probably more likely than not you know mm. and that is very very interesting you know within within a generation you know you could be in nassau you know who knows mm. Wow. Lost place. You know, the, the, it's kind of, again, I, I will freely admit it that it's like the romanticized version of history that we had, but at one point in time we were looking at vacation and at the time I was really into the pirate thing. I'm like, Oh, wouldn't it be cool to go to Nassau? Wouldn't it be cool to take a vacation there? But it's obviously it's not what it is. You know, it's not what it was. I should say it's that you go there now. Yeah. It's a tourist attraction and beaches and hotels and all that kind of stuff. And, but, um, one of the things that um, I found interesting in reading a lot of your blogs, and I, I've always kind of had this perception, is sort of the modern, I guess, view of binary sexuality. Mm -hmm. And sort of we have this view that, you know, and I, I, for the life of me, don't understand it, but for some reason it persists, that the things like being, um, you know, gender roles and sexuality and a gender, you know, sexual preference and all that kind of stuff are somehow new developments like it's only this is only something that we're dealing with now in modern history and and yet uh yeah one of your blog posts dealt with that going all the way back to mesopotamia yes and it's interesting how we tend to view and it, i i had a difficult time wrapping my brain around it and it makes sense because we have this like very human need to try to look at other worlds through our world lens through our cultural lens and mm. since something like you know gender and sexual orientation is such a hot button issue now you just have a tend to look at it like well which side are you on right. and it was interesting to read about a post like uh you know all the way back then in one of the first civilizations that it wasn't even a concern like they didn't wouldn't even have had terms for it the way we have now right no exactly that's exactly the case yeah now i found that so interesting um now, as you mentioned, of course, that uh, that is one of my favorite posts, actually. We're talking about, uh, of course, the, the early priests and priestesses, I suppose. Again, you don't really want to use gendered terms because, you know, it doesn't really apply. Mm -hmm. um, but these are kind of the religious devotees of uh, the goddess Inanna. Uh, now, Inanna was this this ancient sort of mother goddess. And, and I use mother very loosely there. When I say mother, I mean that other goddesses kind of developed from her. So she is 
kind of the the origins, I suppose, of later goddesses like Ishtar, like uh, Sibyl, like Freya, like Aphrodite, people like that. Um, now, interestingly enough, she was a goddess of sex, but she was not a goddess of fertility. She was not like a mother herself. Um, and I think it's very interesting that they separate that. So of course they would have, you know, like one goddess kind of for motherhood and for reproduction that you would, you know, you would pray to her, you know, if you wanted to have children, but Inanna was all about the sex and she was about the war and about the traveling back and forth to the underworld. So, um, but her, her main kind of, well, in, in the articles, we're talking about one of her main kind of responsibilities or uh, honors, I suppose, is she has the ability to change people's gender if they want her to. So uh, a lot of times people would say that they were kind of called in dreams um, or that they, they kind of, they had this kind of feeling kind of within them that they wanted to go and kind of serve Anana and become, you know, um, some of the opposite gender. Um, and I just think that's so wonderful, you know, and of course this is, <laughs> This is the first civilization in the world, you know, this is Mesopotamia. This is more than 3000 years before Christianity, you know, you, you have people living these lives. And of course, uh, not all of her priests and priestesses were uh, transgender, but a lot of them were. Um, so they would go to the temple and they would pray to the goddess and they would become for all intents and purposes, the opposite gender if they wanted to. Um, which I think is wonderful, but like also within that society, they were very accepted, but they were also, they were very honored, very blessed members of that society. They would, well, you know, serve in the temples, but um, also interestingly enough, um, they would also serve kind of uh, as like sacred sex workers. And it was thought to be lucky to sleep with them. So if, uh, if somebody, you know, was kind of having a hard time, then like sometimes like they would go and kind of hook up with one of these priests and they're like, okay, now my luck's going to change. I got this, uh, which I think is kind of awesome. So there was that, but also, you know, they would, they would kind of participate in um, these, you know, kind of very sacred like musical rites. And later on through these other goddesses and their other traditions, they did continue uh, to keep those, you know, kind of trans and non-binary priests, you know, through these different, you know, people, particularly, you know, um, Sibyl is who we're talking about kind of as, as she changes and kind of enters Rome. Um, so she would still have those kind of trans and non-binary priests and they would participate in this kind of public music therapy where they would go and they would have these these beautiful parades where they'd um, play music and make a loud racket. And it's almost like going to a concert. Like when you go to a concert and you hear that really loud music and you kind of, uh, kind of like almost leave your body for a second and you have that wonderful kind of euphoria when you're seeing a band you really love, you know, and people would really get into it and they'd listen to it and they'd dance in the streets and then everyone felt better. So it was almost kind of an early, it was like an early form of like music therapy and uh, her trans and non-binary priests were the people who would do it you know, and there's just so much to it. And this is thousands of years of history. So, I mean, you can't really condense it, but I just think that's incredible. And another, um, another thing that you might find interesting that I don't think made it into that article. So, you know, in, in ancient history, you hear a lot about, uh, you know, particularly places like, like Greece and the ancient world. Um, if, if a baby was born and the, the family didn't want it, or it was deformed in some way, you know, you hear that they would leave it out and just kind of like, let it die of exposure. Well, that's not the end of the story. So speaking of, you know, how these things change in a generation. Now, a lot of these temples to Inanna and Sibyl and these other kind of ancient goddesses would actually, if they could find the children, they would scoop them up and take them and raise them in the temple. Mm. So they weren't necessarily just left to die. They just ended up having these different lives as kind of holy people. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that's really kind of wonderful. That is, that's, that's really cool. Gosh. Oh, my brain could go off in like 20 different directions off of that one. Oh, no, it's crazy, right? <laughs> right. Well, I think most um, most people understand the Greek um, leaving children out to die of exposure, probably from the movie 300. If you've, Yeah, I think they mentioned that in that too, yeah. Yeah, that was, and supposedly that was a big part of Spartan society is that, you know, if a, a child wasn't going to be good enough to, you know, be a proper Spartan soldier, then they would just be discarded. Um the thing that they leave out in that movie that they, again, sanitize for a proper audience is that from what I understand is one of the big parts of the Spartan army is that every Spartan soldier basically have the equivalent of what we would think of as a squire mm -hmm. um, or an assistant who would clean their armor, cook their meals and all that kind of stuff. And these were young, young men who were then training to one day be a full Spartan soldier. One of your duties was to pleasure the one who was your master whenever he wanted oh, yeah. it and wherever you wanted it. <laughs> um, 
that got left out of this very macho beefcake golden abs movie <laughs> at 300 you know that... yeah now uh what's what's interesting about that and this is another psychology thing i think this is kind of cool so um in sparta basically they they encouraged homosexual relationships between men um you know not only because like it's okay you're not going to end up with you know like a whole bunch of kids that you can't take care of but basically if you're in a relationship with somebody like it makes you fight better because you want to impress them right mm -hmm. so yeah. if you're there with your boyfriend and you want to look good in front of him you know you're going to fight better but then also because if anything happened to your partner i mean you'd go nuts right mm -hmm. so if if they were killed in battle then you're going to go absolutely crazy and you're going to take down as many of the enemies as you can so right you know, kind of from a psychological standpoint, it really kind of made sense. Mm -hmm. So of course, also morale is going to be great, you know, so like if everybody's kind of in a relationship and they're happy about it, then that's not, that's not the worst, you know, kind of state of affairs, I suppose. <laughs> Modern armies don't do that. No, no, no they, 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 they really don't. don't. <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine if one day the Marine Corps was like, you know, we've decided we're going to go old school Spartan on this and everybody goes, all right, awesome. Okay. So here's what you're going to do. No, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> All right, you're with him. You're with him. Yeah. You know? <laughs> the, um, the one of the other, uh, I think it was uh, one of the most recent ones you did, had to do with the uh, the history of cocaine. Yeah. Is in modern medicine, which I was just, and every, I think everybody knows that little tidbit that when Coca Cola first started, it had cocaine in it. it and did. I'm kind of like, can I get some of that on some days? That'd be great. Um, <laughs> Wake you up a little bit, right? <laughs> So um, I, I guess I just, uh, my question is, I just want to know more, like uh, what I, what prompted you to write that that post? It was really, really good. Oh, good. I'm so glad you enjoyed it. Mm. Now, um, I mean, I have a lot of interest, you know, of course, I started out with like Saxon history, but I'm also really interested in uh, like pharmaceutical history, uh, drugs, poisons, and things like that, um, particularly things that now we know are poisonous that used to be really common, you know, uh, like they used to put things like lead and makeup and they'd give you arsenic if you had like a stomach ache, that kind of thing. Um, so this is just kind of one of the next drugs on the list. Um, I've done some different things uh, in the past on, uh, you know, opium, laudanum. Uh, we did a, a whole article about uh, pervitin, which is um, basically an early form of methamphetamine uh, that was used uh, in Hitler's army. Um, so that was very interesting. But cocaine, um, now that that was just, it was kind of on the list, but also they, they, they featured it in, I don't know if you've seen it on Netflix, they have this other great series about, uh, about Sigmund Freud and they're talking oh. about how, oh, it's, it's terrific. I'm um, so they're talking Sorry. about, uh, how, well, he was, he was addicted to it and he used to use it in a lot of his therapy and he would recommend it to patients. Um, but of course at the time, this is, this is not considered a big deal, um, because a lot of doctors were using it for, for different purposes. So kind of around, you know, mid 19th century, you know, they, they had noticed it among the sort of indigenous people of South America who'd been using it for thousands of thousands of years. And now they noticed, of course, that it had this kind of good effect in them and they would, you know, they would chew the cocoa leaves and, you know, and make them kind of happy and make them, you know, kind of be able to work kind of longer hours. So they wanted to bring it back and see if they could synthesize it, take out the active ingredients, and then maybe apply that to, you know, kind of modern medicine. So around this time, they were experimenting a lot. So uh, they found that it constricts blood vessels and uh, it dulls your pain tolerance. So they would use it in like a lot of dental work. Uh, they would use it for eye surgery and things like that. Uh, now Freud used to use it. Of course, you know, we know that he's like, you know, he did the psychoanalysis and everything. So he would look at it uh, from kind of a psychological standpoint. But he also used it himself in order to, you know, be able to work long hours and to be able to focus and having that kind of pressure to be, you know, kind of a high achieving doctor, you can see why he might have been interested in that. And um, on a related note, you know, not too much later, of course, uh, doctors, especially in Germany, were also, you know, the, the first people who were kind of recommending pervitin, which, of course, um, now, as I mentioned, is, is like an early form of meth, you know. So, you know, doctors and medical students and people who needed to work long hours with greater focus, they were using these things um, as well. So, of course, they're trying it in different medical experiments. They're recommending it to the public. And then before too terribly long, you know, you find out that, well, actually, it's got some side effects that you're not going to love. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we have an FDA now, right? Okay. Yeah, thank God. Yeah. Yeah. Now, um, funnily enough, we actually did another post that, uh, that talks a little bit about that. Now, there was... Um, in the 1930s, there was a sort of wonder drug for weight loss um, that sort of inspired the, the, the early years of the FDA and other kinds of licensing bodies like that. 
Now, I think it was called BNP, and it was this pill that they used to give people because it does actually help you lose weight very effectively. Um, but the trouble is that the way that it does it is that you actually start to kind of slowly burn to death from the inside. Like it literally wow. sets fire to fat, um, which is really cool. But if you take too much, you you can't be brought back. You basically get a fever that gets worse and worse and worse until you die. Um, and even today, if you can find it and you take it, if you overdose, they cannot save you. Oh, wow. um, so that's a really, really interesting post. Uh, and it makes you feel a little bit better about like Atkins or, you know, whatever people are doing these days. You know? <laughs> I think keto is the thing right now. Yeah, that's, the thing. Yeah, that's, that, that's a little bit a little bit healthier than, uh, than taking BNP. Mm -hmm. Do not mess with that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was really interesting. One of my uh, all time favorite shows on Netflix is a show called Meat Eater. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Oh, no. Oh, it's um, it centers around this guy by the name of Stephen Ranella, um, who is who is a hunter. And as somebody who's a hunter myself, I enjoy it. Um, extremely intelligent person. And on the show, he travels, you know, all around the world. He's a different breed. He's the kind of guy who'll get dropped off by a bush plane in Alaska and live out of his backpack for a week while he's all cunning. Oh, my God. Um, okay. Yeah. But one of the, they did a two part episode where I want to say he went down to Ghana and met up with this really, really remote tribe and basically spent a week just sort of observing how they hunt and how they fish and just sort of taking in sort of the cultural differences between what we view here. And of course, here we have this, you know, thing where if I decide to get dressed up in my camo and go out in a tree and go deer hunting, if I don't get a deer, my family's not going to starve. You know, right. there's a McDonald's right there. We're okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, whereas out there, they literally go out and anything and everything because that is literally the dinner for their family. But what brings me to that, the cocaine part of it, is that th that plant grows plentiful in that area. Yeah. And every time they go off in the bush, they carry what we consider to be grocery bags full of these leaves. And they would just bundle them up and put them in the corner of your mouth and chew on it. And he did it. And he said, it's about the equivalent of a cup of coffee. And it's rawest yeah. form. It's just like, yeah, it's a bit of a pick, you know, bit of a pick me up and that kind of stuff. But yeah, you distill it down to just like you said, it's active ingredients, and then you're dealing with a totally different story. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, um, you know, in the sort of leaf form, as I understand it, it's, you know, it is a stimulant, but it's not, it's not that powerful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is, that is really crazy. Um, one of the um, books that I saw you took part in was Sexuality and Its Impact on History, the British Strip Bear. Yes. I I'm very frustrated because I ordered that book and I was hoping it would come in time for me to be able to read it before we had this podcast, oh, but no. it still hasn't even gotten to me yet. So for anybody who hasn't heard of it, how would you basically, how would you boil down that book to somebody? Okay. Um, it's a really fun book. It's a project I got to take part in. I was uh, you know, lucky to be asked. It's uh, a whole bunch of different historians and uh, each one writes an essay about a different period in time, kind of talking about the sexual history of Britain through, you know, uh, different time periods, different episodes, different kind of things that happen. So I have a chapter in there, uh, which is about the Middle Ages. So of course, you know, that's what my degree is in and that's what I talk about. Um, now in that, it's a lot like Dirty Sexy History in that, you know, I, I'm not I'm not just kind of repeating the, the same thing they told you in history class, you know. Uh, I do talk about, um, you know, kind of sex and birth control throughout that period. Um, and then also, um, you know, homosexual relationships, a little bit of sex magic, all different kinds of things that were going on. So uh, it's very interesting, you know, um, especially if you are interested in the sexual history of Britain, um, each essay is a little bit different, um, but you know, there's, there's a lot of good stuff in there and uh, it is well worth, worth a read if you can get a hold of it. That came out through Pen and Sword um, and it's a, it's a really interesting book. Mm -hmm. What's, um, how, we were at a point in time a long time ago where homosexuality wasn't even a concern. Like it was just something people did. It was, you know, like, I like purple, I like green. Okay, nobody cares. Sure. At some point in time, that became a very taboo slash polarizing issue. Are we able to, in any way, shape, or form, put a finger on kind of when that turned, when that changed to what we're trying to come out of now? That's a really good question. Uh, now, of course, my main frame of reference is, is going to be kind of British history because that's what I specialize in. I can't necessarily speak for, you know, kind of all the cultures. Um, but at least in Britain, now that that's going to kind of vary. Now, the way that people looked at things, it's it's not at all like, like we kind of look at things now, like everything's very binary, you know? Um, if you think of it kind of like the Kinsey scale, basically like, you know, sexuality kind of being a spectrum, um, for a very long time, you know, basically everybody kind of fell, you know, or appreciated that they kind of fell somewhere on that. So, you know, in, in, in times past, you're going to have 
you know, men who are, who are not kind of following like the exact strict gender roles that people do today. You know, it used to be more common for men to wear, you know, wigs and makeup and all different kinds of things. But at the same time, during that time period, it was, it was very much frowned on for men to be cross-dressing or you have people, uh, you know, they used to call them like mollies, right? You know, of course they'd dress up as women. And a lot of times they were sex workers or they were, you know, just guys just trying to have a good time. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, now, the way that they looked at it, it was very, very different for, you know, male homosexual relationships versus like lesbian relationships. Now, women, their relationships with each other were basically always, you know, kind of more or less tolerated, um, basically for a long time, because men couldn't figure out what they were doing with each other, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like they thought like, well, you know, you did whatever they're doing is fine. They're just bored or whatever, you know, like it can't be it can't be too harmful. Like the kind of key ingredient, of course, you know, basically being a penis, right? So like, if you don't have one, it's like, well, there's no, there's no kind of threat there. But then, you know, with two men being together, it's like seen as like twice as threatening. So, um, you know, of course, I'm, I'm sure you've heard, you know, the, you know, the term sodomy. And like, now people think of that as like being like homosexual sex. But like back in the Middle Ages, that was like basically any type of non-vanilla you know, kind of like male, female missionary sex for reproduction. It was anything else. So the trouble when you go back through these kind of court cases and things of, of people kind of being brought up on like sodomy charges, we don't know exactly what they're talking about. So it could be like what we think of, or it could just be like somebody getting a blow job like behind the bar or whatever, you know, it could be anything. Um, so people would look at these things very, very differently. Now, like men being involved with each other, um, that was, you know, not exactly not exactly encouraged, but, you know, more or less kind of tolerated. It's always happened up until, you know, kind of around Henry VIII's time. Now he really cracked down around that time and he passed a whole bunch of ordinances and things like that against homosexuality, where all of a sudden it became a very, very serious crime. Um, so after that, of course, it's, it's basically forced underground and you get, or you start to get, you know, some of these, you know, kind of secret kind of molly houses and things like that. So like throughout we're talking about like kind of like the 17th, 18th century, you're going to have these, you know, kind of uh, secret brothels or secret kind of meeting places uh, for men to go and to meet each other, you know. Uh, you know, Mother Claps Molly House is a, is a thing that comes up a lot. Um, I don't think we've covered that yet on the blog, um, but but that is, that is another, you know, kind of shameful episode in history, I'm afraid. So of course, if, if men were caught, terrible things could happen to them. You know, uh, they could be executed. They could be punished in various ways. But one thing, bringing it back to the pirates, it's very interesting, is if men were convicted of these homosexual relationships, a lot of the time, the punishment was actually to enlist in the Royal Navy, right? <laughs> so of course, the best way to cure this is to be confined with only other men for years at a time. And a lot of them are there because of the same reason you are, right? So, <laughs> right, so you get all these court cases as well from the time, you know, of, of, uh, of men being spotted having relationships with each other. But, you know, like even if you have a witness, that's not, you know, maybe nothing's gonna happen to you, it's hard to say. But, mm -hmm. but you do have a lot of these people, uh, you know, who are having these relationships, it's very well documented. And then of course, you know, back in London as well, but it is very much forced underground. Uh, now women, right, you know, they were, you know, they were friends, right? They were kind of special friends. They were very close friends. Um, and it appears, you know, in fiction a lot too. And, and, you know, women would experiment with each other at very young ages. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, even if they married, they would continue these relationships uh, or they would just live with each other as spinsters, right? <coughs> but it's always happened. Excuse me. Mm -hmm. That's, um, gosh, that, that pirate part of it cracks me up. I don't think that was well thought out. I don't think <laughs> no. they thought that through ahead of time. <laughs> you know what we're going to do to you? We're going to set you straight, get on the ship with these other guys and go across the ocean. That'll be fine. Yeah, these, these <laughs> other guys who are who are also here because they were caught being gay. You know, like, that's <laughs> perfect. That's a great idea. Yeah. You like loud music? We're going to make you work at a record store to teach you a lesson. Okay. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> do we have any idea what... Um, Henry VIII's motivation was to crack down on this? Now, I wish I knew more about that, to be honest with you. Now, I found a little bit about that. It's um, it's going to be coming out in an article that I'm working on uh, at the moment for, you know, you know, kind of a roundup of uh, basically the question that you just asked about what's going on with the, the kind of history of homosexuality in Britain. Now, I found that, but I still don't know why. Um, mm -hmm. So that is something that I'm very much looking into, and I wish I could tell you. Yeah, that's, gosh, that's interesting. Because um, you always wonder, you know, because for so long, and I, I always found it interesting when I was um, a history major, my area was the American Civil War period. Mm 
Oh, yeah. And, and it was interesting in that period of time when we talk about um, displays of affection were completely different then. You know, it wasn't yeah. uncommon for two men who were good friends to be walking down the sidewalk in the middle of the day holding hands. There sure. was no sexual connotation to that whatsoever. It was just a sign that they were close and they were friends and that it wasn't uncommon that if a male friend was coming from out of town to visit, he would stay in bed with, you know, the male, the head of the household while the woman was relegated to, and then vice versa. If she had a female friend, you know, um, and today that, that kind of was the weird thing about um, the big blow up several years ago that went on about the, this, I think there was a book that was written that was basically hypothesizing that Abraham Lincoln was homosexual. Um, but a lot of its evidence was circumstantial at best, mm. a misunderstanding of the times. Um, you know, back then they didn't have Motel 8s, you know, they didn't have right. Radisons, you know, when you were traveling through, especially when you were a lawyer on the Prairie Circuit, typically people, they would have a house that would have a big attic in it and they would have eight beds laid out and they'd pack 16 people in there. You were sharing a bed with other men every single night, all kinds of traveling businessmen, you know, you name it. Um, so for them to use those sort of things as evidence. And of course, more importantly, my, my stance is who cares? Well, <laughs> he was, who gives a shit? I don't, you know, he yeah. ended slavery. So um, interesting question. I love to ask historians this question um, is that, cause I've wrestled with it personally myself. I still don't know how I feel about this, which is where do we stand in terms of the lens that we view the history? Do we evaluate people based upon our values or do we judge them based upon the values of the time? Now, that's a really tricky question. And um, when it comes to the values of the time, I think what's important uh, is to, well, one, understand them. Um, and two, like to appreciate that there's, there's a very big difference between, you know, what the official values were at the time and what it was like for actual people, you know, kind of walking around. Um, now that's, that's one of those things that comes up a lot. Uh, so for example, you know, like the medieval church, right? So officially you're not supposed to have sex basically for any reason, apart from like procreation or whatever. So when you look at these penitentials and things like that, these are basically guides about like what kind of punishment to assign to what kind of sin based on what people are confessing. When you look at the penitentials and the actual kind of practice, you find more and more that in practice, it wasn't a big deal. You know, like they appreciated, the church appreciated that people were gonna be doing all kinds of different things. So, you know, there's there's your kind of like kind of standard penance that is assigned to all these things. They're not gonna burn you at the stake for getting late. They don't care, you know? So like officially it was, you know, it was not the kind of thing that you do, but unofficially it was very common, you know? Um, also, you know, things like, things like conduct manuals, right? You have these kind of guides to manners and, you know, how to conduct yourself and, you know, kind of rules of society or whatever. But these things are not written because people were doing that. These things are written because they weren't. So there's a very, very, very big difference. So one, I mean, you should definitely look at that. Um, I don't think that we should use our, you know, kind of current viewpoint to interpret those things because, what happened then is how we got to our current viewpoint. So it doesn't necessarily apply. It doesn't go both ways. Understanding the past is a very good way of understanding how we got here and why people feel the way that they do about certain things now. Um, it, it kind of, I don't know, I suppose it makes that make a little bit more sense, but it doesn't, you can't reflect that back on it. So you can't say like, well, we have very strict gender roles now. So people must have had really strict gender roles then. And they didn't, it's not, it's not the case. So what I would probably recommend, I guess, at least how I try to approach it is not even worrying so much about like their values versus our values, but if you can approach history with empathy, you know, if you can really try to put yourself in their shoes, you know, the, the thinking, you know, the, the way that people, the way that people thought, the way that people live, you know, their, their basic wants and needs, they don't change. People don't really change, you know, you could be in the 18th century, but you'd still be you. You know, like you could have, you know, kind of a different background and you grow up surrounded by all these different things and maybe you'd go be a pirate, you know, maybe it makes sense to you, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, so if you can try to approach things from that point of view, you know, you still, you still have that, you still wake up in the morning and you're hungry, you know, you still want to have relationships, you know, you still resent people telling you what to do, you know, because, mm -hmm. you know, we're human. Mm -hmm. So if you can kind of 
put yourself in their shoes and kind of have that empathy for the people in the past and realize, no, these are not aliens. These are not completely different beings. You know, they didn't all obey their parents because they were supposed to, you know, I feel like that's kind of an easier way of, of approaching it or understanding it or making it more accessible. Just realize that, you know, they're not completely different people. It's just, it's you in different shoes. You know what I mean? Right. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, Because, and I think sometimes modern wise, we have this view or this need, I guess, to um, pigeonhole everyone either A plus good or F minus bad. Yes. You know, and dealing with that gray area. And I, I've thought that a lot when I think about on uh, past historical figures, um, especially ones that, you know, I know the most people such as like George Washington, who mm-hmm. you could sit there, you could literally make a pros and cons list a mile long on both sides. So how do you evaluate a person like that? Do you look at him and you say, well, he did this and he did this and he did this and he did this. And you're like, yeah, he did all that. But for his time, he was pretty liberal. He was yeah. really liberal on a lot of those things, you know, and, and we're all, we're always the product of our, of our raising, you know, we're all the product of the environment that we grow up in. Um, mm-hmm. So I always give props to anybody, no matter where they were for pushing it a little bit more progressively, you know, based than where it is. Speaking of which, who were all these guys who came up with these rules about being so pure when it comes to sexual stuff like this is the past so you know it's guys so what group of guys are getting together and be like we need less sex (laughs) are you who were these people come on oh my lord i can't imagine that would probably be the most unbelievable thing from history that a group of dudes got in a room and tried to come up with a way for people to have less sex you'd think they'd be making the other rules the other way like you know what free society let's have fun um (laughs) yeah i mean you think so and um what's funny with that too is okay so so people especially when you start to like like look at religious history and kind of like church guidelines and things like that um people tend to think that like what what their sort of minister or priest or whoever is telling them now is what they've always been told but that's not the case so the the more you get into to kind of church history and things like that you realize that you know kind of every hundred years or so the rules change and the rules continue to change you know um kind of like the constitution being like a living document you know like they they have these meetings and they they decide okay well this is the interpretation now so what people are saying now is not always what they said uh for example uh priests were allowed to get married for the first thousand years of christianity you know they were married they had families it was okay um so at that point you know they when they decided that okay priests aren't allowed to get married anymore and that didn't go over particularly well and uh, the transition took a pretty long time now i wish i knew the name off the top of my head but there is one case where a messenger was sent to inform the priests in a certain town that they weren't allowed to have wives anymore and of course these guys they're already married they have kids they're happy right and the messenger comes and um, I mean, I think they murdered him. Like they actually like straight up killed the messenger, you know? Um, and I, I wish I had this example for you because it's so good. Um, but this is something that people argued about, you know? Mm-hmm. Gosh, that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> so the I, celibacy thing wasn't, it hasn't always been that way. Yeah. And I always wonder what, um, you know, cause it probably boils down to one blowhard making that decision. <laughs> And what yeah. possibly was going through his head, like, you know, we're going to tell all these people that, nah, we're just not tolerating it anymore. That's just terrible. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. Well, um, the, the idea that was like, um, philosophically, I should say, is, you know, basically anything connected to your body must be like base. So like to, to be kind of like a better Christian or to be, um, you know, kind of in, in this kind of realm of the spirit where you can kind of understand God, you can devote yourself entirely to worship basically you need to have no bodily needs you know so people people would starve themselves you know people would fast people would you know completely abstain from any kind of sexual activity whatsoever so this is you know this period where people were were thinking about this and really taking that on and really going full-on kind of masochistic with it you know Mm -hmm. but it wasn't always that way yeah um, so I think that's important to remember. And then also kind of at this time, and this is something else that I talk about in uh, sexuality and its impact on history, and then also a couple of the posts on the blog, um, the church was not always against abortion, which I find very interesting, because of course, that's that's one of the major hot button issues that people talk about now, you know, they're saying like, oh, well, you know, the Bible's against it. The Bible is not against it. It doesn't come up in the Bible, actually. Um, apart from there is one verse, and I wish I could remember what it was, that, that will straight up tell you that if you suspect your wife of cheating on you, that you should make her drink this concoction of bitter herbs, which basically makes her miscarry. Um, so that is a thing that, that people were doing, not only like as a punishment, but you know as a form of birth control. Um, there are 
something like more than 200 known herbs that will cause miscarriage. And people have always known what they were. Women have always known what they were until kind of very recently. But in these penitentials, they talk about the penance for, you know, trying to kind of stimulate a miscarriage or trying to, you know, basically abort. Now, they, they didn't necessarily know when conception happened. So this has been a debate that was going on for a very long time um, and, and has continued really to this day. So basically anything that happened before you could feel a baby kick, they considered it contraception, you know, because they didn't really know when you were officially pregnant. So if, if a woman was going to, you know, kind of like take these herbs to kind of like regulate her menstrual cycle, you know, is, you know, kind of what they called it, it wasn't a big deal, you know? So like, you can like, you know, fast on a feast day or whatever, but then, you know, you're kind of good. And there were all these debates at the time about like, well, if she's poor, is it even really a sin? Like if she can't afford to take care of children, does it matter? So it really depended more on kind of like her circumstances and, you know, who the child would grow up to be. Like if it was like a noble woman's wife, it was a really big deal. And that's a really bad thing to do. You absolutely cannot do that. But if it's like a poor woman, say she's already got seven kids, they don't care. you know, they really, really don't care. Um, so that's the thing, you know, and that's, that's something that they were, you know, kind of debating for a very long time. And then they didn't officially come out against it in, in any kind of, you know, serious kind of stronger terms really until like the 19th century. So that's something that people, you know, kind of take for granted, but you know, it's not what you think. Mm -hmm. That's great. <laughs> the, um, so here's another question I love asking historians. Um, if you had a time machine, yeah, right. <laughs> and you could go live any period in time, anywhere, what would you say? Uh, like to live there, like for a long period of time? We'll, we'll say either or, to visit and uh, and live, whichever one you wanted to go with. Okay, that's a really good question. <laughs> I would probably go with sometime in the Georgian period or possibly like the end of the 17th century. Okay. So, you know, so that way, you know, kind of the plague is out of the way, the fire is out of the way, but like they're still having fun, you know, like the, the Victorian manners haven't, you know, kind of set in yet. You mm. know, people like to look at the Victorian period and look at how kind of how stuffy everybody was. And they assume that the further back you go, like the more stuff, like the kind of stuffier it got. Um, but that's, that's really not the case. It's sort of like um, Charles II's time. I mean, everybody was incredibly rude. You know, I mean, there's a, a lot of swearing, a lot of misbehavior, a lot of getting drunk in the streets. I mean, I think it sounds like a great time. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like New Orleans at Mardi Gras. You know? Yeah, just all the time. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. Um, so you, uh, you, had, you had said earlier you attended college in Wales. Yes. Um, and this is just kind of a personal, it's something to do with history because I'm just fascinated. Wales is like, one of the places that I've always wanted to go to. Um, my my family distantly is originally from there. My great grandparents are originally from Wales. So I got to ask, what was it like? Oh, it was lovely. It was really nice. Mm -hmm. um, I got really lucky. Uh, I applied to a whole bunch of different schools and Swansea was the first one to write back. So I went to uh, the University of Wales at Swansea. Uh, it is on the, the kind of South Coast in Glamorgan. Uh, it's the second largest city. And it's, um, well, I, I don't suppose... Most people probably would not consider it beautiful. <laughs> uh, of course, Dylan Thomas called it the ugly, lovely town, right? The graveyard of ambition. It's the end of the line and you, uh, you take the train from London and that's just as far as it goes. It just stops there. <laughs> but Wales is the most beautiful place in the world. It's absolutely incredible. Mm. Um, now I've never been to New Zealand, but parts of it, like once you get out of the, once you get out of the cities, you know, it looks just like the set of Lord of the Rings. It's like okay. this has not changed since the medieval period. Mm -hmm. There's more castles per square mile than anywhere else in the world. And it is absolutely gorgeous. And so much of it, it's not really built up at all. Um, and it's difficult to get around because of that. Mm -hmm. um, but when you have, you know, that sort of fantasy of like a picturesque kind of British landscape, I mean, that's, that's really it. Mm -hmm. Now, England is mostly flat. You know, uh, you know, with a with a few exceptions, England is 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 mostly flat. It's also very nice, but Wales is gorgeous. You know, mm -hmm. especially kind of kind of North Wales and everything. You get all these you know all these mountains and these ancient forests and these castles everywhere, cathedrals. Oh my God, that's absolutely stunning. Yeah, I've seen tons of pictures, and that's me and my wife have that on our bucket list. My uh, great grandparents came. Uh, 
immigrated to the United States after World War One. My great grandfather actually fought in the British Army in World War One. Wow. And and after the war came to the United States, he was a coal miner, lived in a coal mining town and that sounds about right. <laughs> came through and they said, Hey, you know, he said, I'm a coal miner, where'd I go? And at the time there were a lot of coal mines in central Illinois that were active. Keep heading west, keep heading west, and ended up in outside Taylorville, Illinois. And you know, the rest is is of course with a last name like Finch. You can't really deny your heritage, you know. <laughs> Nobody's okay. gonna believe I'm like Latino or Chinese or anything with a last name like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, but, that's uh, fun. Well, okay. Well, I'm going to uh, wrap this up. I want to once again thank you so much for taking time um, out of your day. And uh, do you want to let people know where they can find you at? Yeah, absolutely. Now, uh, the blog is Dirty Sexy History, which is dirtysexyhistory.com. Uh, that is the easiest way to find me. It's got links to uh, all my other social media and everything like that. And uh, also very exciting. And uh, you're going to have to pray for me here. But we're also starting a Dirty Sexy History podcast, uh, which is called Dirty Sexy History. And uh, the first episode will hopefully be up within the next couple of weeks. So uh, fingers crossed there. I will be a subscriber. That sounds great. Like that's even better. Okay. <laughs> like yeah, I like we'll return the I like, I like reading, but if I can listen to it, that's even better. So <laughs> yeah, no, it's fun. Um, I, I wanted to make it uh, kind of more accessible to everybody, you know, cause blogs are really fun and everything, but um, I mean, I love a good podcast. I like to listen to podcasts when I'm cleaning or driving or, you know, any of that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So hopefully it'll, you know, reach some more people and people will be able to, you know, kind of enjoy it in a different way. Right. Well, that's really, and I, see, now I get to do the reverses because I've had people who have podcasts come on this podcast. And now I get to have somebody who was on the show go do a podcast and I get to listen to that. So that's, that's, that's great. I'm excited about that. Great. Good. Well, I, I hope it comes off. <laughs> We're going to try our best. <laughs> oh, I'm sure it'll be great. Uh, between you and the content, it's a, it's an instant home run. So absolutely. Well, once again, thank you so much for uh, taking time out of your day and I will let you go and continue on and not have to worry about me pestering you anymore. No, not at all. It's, it's been absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. Take care, Jessica. You too. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. All right, everyone. So that was the podcast with Jessica Kale. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. I had a lot of fun talking to her. That was a really great episode. Um, again, you can find her Dirty Sexy History. Go Google it. You will enjoy it. And she also let us know that she's got a podcast coming. And I'm really excited about that because I will listen to that religiously. Anyway, I want to thank each and every one of you for listening. Everyone who has reached out to me, contacted me with your moans, groans, comments, complaints, all of it, all of it's useful to me. I love it. I want to say that I love each and every one of you. Take care of each other and we'll see you next time.